Our scripture comes from Genesis 50, 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Thank you, Diane. So we have been journeying through Genesis for a few months now. We are actually on our last Sunday uh, and message uh, in Genesis. We've, we've been looking at different major figures through Genesis. The last couple of weeks have been on uh, Joseph. We've gone from Eden out to Egypt. And we've seen how Adam and Eve rejected God out of fear that his promises wouldn't be enough. And he really, really didn't know what was best for them or that maybe they would miss out on something somehow. We also saw fear in some other ways throughout Genesis. Fear of rejection that led to Cain's uh, murder of Abel. Fear of failed promises that led to Abraham and Sarah to try inappropriate means to have a child. To laugh at God when he promises a, a child to them in their old age. Uh, fear of being overlooked uh, is what, or, or overcome is what leads Jacob to lie and to deceive many in his lifetime. Fear of losing a third child is what leads Judah to make some unfortunate decisions. Uh, I'd argue in many ways, Genesis is kind of a book about fear. Our very human responses to our fear and God's enduring faithfulness and redemption of us despite our frantic and fearful actions. So it's fitting then that we end with another example of fear and faithfulness. Joseph's brothers trying to guarantee mercy for themselves for fear that Joseph is holding a grudge. And God's faithfulness in reconciling the family through Joseph's gracious response. I think it's an inspiring story uh, and one that uh, we can glean the overall message of fairly easily, right? Forgiveness and mercy is a key character trait of God's people. We ought to want to forgive and we ought to forgive others. But I want to spend some time this morning getting a little more practical even than usual. Because I think while, while most of us can agree that forgiveness is something that we should practice, actually forgiving others is quite a challenging thing to do. Have you ever had this difficulty yourself? Uh, and I've had people tell me several times before in life, like, I know that I should forgive them, but how, how do you forgive? How am I supposed to forgive this thing? That was done to me. So I want to break it uh, down in our text this morning on two fronts. One, how to forgive others, just some tips for how to do this. And two, how to receive forgiveness from others, because I think that's even more present in the text than first. But let's, we're good now? 
Aha. How do I forgive them? Let's talk about some steps to forgiveness. We, if you're in our, our morning life group, we already chatted about this a couple weeks ago, so this is your uh, cementing it even further in your mind, some things that we talked about. Uh, seven tips here. Uh, I'll, I'll read them through, and then we'll break them down a little more as we go through. One, acknowledging the depth of the pain you experience. Remembering God's love. Thanking God for forgiveness. Extending grace to the other. Surrendering your hurt unto God. Establishing healthy boundaries. And praying for their good. Start with the first one. Acknowledging the depth of the pain or offense. This is a really important one, and it's one that we can oftentimes, in our eagerness to forgive, because uh, we know that we should forgive, that we sometimes rush past this first point. But simply pretending that the pain didn't happen or that it didn't hurt doesn't really help us to release it or to move past the pain to forgiveness. I want to note in the text that Joseph doesn't shy away from identifying that his brothers meant their actions for evil, right? He says this, you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He, he, he knows that what they did was wrong. He identifies that for them. It is important for us not to rush past our own understanding, our own lamenting of our pain. Because if we do that, we may not really fully be able to get to the place where we're actually letting go of the pain. It's okay whenever someone has wounded you and, and they may become trying to apologize and, and asking you to forgive them for you to say, I want to extend forgiveness to you. I want to get to that place. I might need some time to really understand how I even feel about this. And if you don't, then maybe you also will have to forgive them again, you know, a week later or, or two weeks later, and that's also okay. But this is an important part of the process of being able to offer forgiveness is understanding what we were even forgiving. The second step, though, and, and moving from that, is to then acknowledge the love that God has both for you and for the other individual. As we remember the, the depth of love that God has shown to us and all of us and extending forgiveness for our wrong. It helps us to root us in the understanding that while we are think, trying to understand the pain that was experienced, we're not doing that in order to dwell on it or in order to dismiss it, but in order to understand it so that we can move towards forgiveness. That's the goal. And so when we understand God's forgiveness and God's love for us, it helps to prepare our hearts to then thank God for the forgiveness that he has offered us and extend that same grace to the one who was wrong. When we remember what God has done, we feel the, the love and forgiveness that has been offered to us. It makes it easier for us to start loosening the grip. And then step five here, surrendering our pain and our hurt into the Lord's hands. So, while hearing acknowledgement of pain and contrition from the offending party in your life can be a really helpful part for our, of our healing, we have to acknowledge also that we must ultimately trust in God for our healing. We cannot guarantee that the person who wounded us or offended us, one, will ever even acknowledge that they did what they did. We can't guarantee that will happen. We also can't guarantee they'll still be around. 
we may have, for whatever reason, just parted paths from them, it may be too late at some point for any number of reasons in order to, to find that. The good news is, though, that we don't have to hope in that happening in order for us to actually experience some measure of healing and, uh, and restoration in the process. We can't and shouldn't place our hope in our offender's hands, but we can and should place our hope in God's hands. To surrender the pain and the hurt and the wounding that we have um, felt into the hands of the one person who loves us most, who is the author of life and can actually bring healing in the midst of our hurt. It helps also in this to remember that forgiveness isn't for the person you are forgiving. For you, for the process of healing, because uh, maybe you've heard this said before, right? That uh, uh, when we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, it is like this bitterness. Um, there's a, a leader in South Africa, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He talks about uh, truth and reconciliation and forgiveness. He says, when you when you have unforgiveness in you, it's like poison in your tum tum. Like it just it hurts, right? It it it. Um, poisons us and makes it difficult for us to ever move past into something that will be productive and whole. But that leads us also to to step six here, to establish healthy boundaries. We need to do this in order to prevent being wounded again or even offering temptation for the other to sin in the same way if they haven't even understood what happened the first time. I want to share with you, I don't have this on the slide, but um, there's a a book called Peacemaker by a a guy named Ken Sandy. He talks a lot about forgiveness and and reconciliation and that. And he has something I think is really helpful that he calls the four promises of forgiveness. The first is, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. The second promise, I will not bring up this incident and use it against you. The third promise, I will not talk to other people about this incident. And promise four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. He has a fun little saying that he puts along with this. Good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. Um, But he... A helpful point in all of this is that maintaining a posture of forgiveness and extending mercy only requires the first promise. And it's actually unhealthy to make the other three promises until there have been uh, clearly understood boundaries uh, and and expectations in the relationship moving forward. Uh, to, To extend mercy, it only involves making that first promise. Not dwelling on your hurt, not dwelling on the incident, um, is your release from the poison of unforgiveness. To say, I'm not going to keep replaying this event over and over and over in my head. I'm not going to dwell on it. But it's not wise to make the other three promises, not bringing up the incident or not talking to others about the incident or not letting the incident stand between us or hinder our relationship until repentance has occurred or there's some understanding of how to move forward with with healthy expectations. Because there might still yet be unresolved issues that you need to put in order in the relationship, right? We don't want to keep a record of wrongs to use against others, but it's impossible to adequately explain to someone why a pattern of hurtful behavior needs to be addressed if you've already promised that you're not going to bring up the incident again and again, right? If If you need to be able to talk about the incident, don't make that promise yet so that you can be able to 
uh, communicate adequately. We also know we shouldn't gossip and talk to other people behind their back. But Jesus himself gives us a pattern in Matthew 18 that if we've approached someone to try to uh, reconcile and, and address a sin or, or something they, they have wounded you about, that if they don't listen, to then go and ask some trusted friends to be able to be in the church to be a part of the conversation with you. You can't do that if you have promised that you won't talk to other people about the incident, right? Uh, and so we need to not make that promise unless and until we are able. Also, we know that we shouldn't let past wrongs hinder our relationship if we aren't even willing to talk to them about it or if they uh, are earnestly trying to live differently. But we can't address significant issues if we uh, have already promised not to let it stand between us. If there are still issues that need to be handled, we need to be able to, um, to talk about it and, and let people know, hey, this is a boundary you continue to cross. I say, told our life group about an incident um, uh, I was talking with, with a friend of mine who, um, they, they had a friend that just would not stop talking to them about this, these certain political issues that they knew they had di disagreements about. And it would always end up in this kind of clashing space. And so uh, my friend Sally just uh, finally said I, to her friend, I need us to not talk about this in order for the relationship to continue. I need us to not talk about this. That's uh, the only thing I'm asking here. I'm not asking you to change your mind about it. I'm just saying, let's, let's not talk about this to maintain our friendship. And yet still, that friend would come to her uh, and, and still talk about it, still bring it up, even knowing. And so finally, she had to establish that boundary to say, I have communicated with you that this is an issue, and you're not respecting the boundary that I have asked, which I think is a reasonable boundary uh, to put up. And so we are not going to be able to continue interacting if you're always going to bring these things up. And so I think that's a fair and a reasonable boundary to put up. And think about, though, the way that Jesus forgives us when we think about the, these, these steps as well. We know that through the cross, Jesus has already demonstrated his willingness to forgive all of our offenses and to renew uh, his relationship with us. But also our repentance is required to fully reconcile the relationship. And repentance isn't earning forgiveness. It was already offered as a free gift. Repentance is like accepting the offer. Establishing boundaries, it's, it's not withholding forgiveness. It's establishing clear expectations for the rebuilding of trust and a relationship as you move forward. So it is important that we establish healthy boundaries in order to get to a place uh, of, of working forward and forgiveness. And finally, we pray for the other person's good. We pray for the good of those who harm us. We pray for the good of those who persecute us, who, who wish all sorts of evil against us, because we know that's the posture that Jesus has taken towards us, that even while we were at odds with him, that he loved us to the uttermost. Now, we don't see all of these steps on display in Joseph's story, but we do see that Joseph has been able to surrender his hurt into God's hands and extend forgiveness to his brothers before they ever did anything to acknowledge their wrong. He was able to do that part. And let's note also here that Joseph is in a convenient situation where he has all the power in the relationship at the moment. So he hasn't had to have difficult conversations about boundaries with them because they aren't able to hurt them and hurt him in the same way that they did before. From Joseph's perspective, all of this has worked out well, and he has come to peace with it. But they have not yet come to peace with it. 
we see the, the famous line here, right? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And yet they're still not there yet. They're still not in agreement about that. It's obvious that they are not yet fully reconciled. I love that we get to this epilogue in in chapter 50, and this is actually the second time that Joseph has said this kind of thing to them. Because in chapter 45, when he first reveals himself to his brothers, Joseph says this. He says, and now, do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Moves on in verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph has come to this place of acceptance of the events and and being able to to move on from there. And yet by chapter 50, even after he has offered his words of peace, we now see his brothers pulling this little stunt to try to to get this forgiveness thing in writing. They, They go and they say, okay, dad has passed away. Let's tell, let's tell Joseph that this was really what dad wanted. He really wanted to make sure that you forgave us. And so he's, they're trying to get this in, a, um, in some sort of ironclad contract here. And why is that, right? They're afraid. They're afraid that he's still holding a grudge. Grace can be incredibly hard to believe and very difficult to receive. For Joseph's brothers, the death of their father revealed their lack of closure after what they had done to Joseph. Joseph had already made peace with it, but they hadn't made peace with it. They're fearful for their lives. Even though Joseph has already told them there's nothing to worry about. You might wonder if Joseph has been giving them kind of weird nonverbal vibes here, uh, that he's still, he's kind of angry about the whole situation. But I think that actually their fears here is more revealing of their own character than it is of Joseph's. They fear that he's still harboring resentment, probably because that's what they would have done in the situation. In uh, in Genesis 34, there's an interesting story about uh, Simeon and Levi uh, doing the same sort of thing when they pretended to make peace with this Hivite prince who had violated their sister. And instead of letting uh, him marry their sister as arranged, they took the city by surprise by slaughtering all of them. They had kind of feigned this peace with this other city, and then they go and they exact their revenge in order to protect the honor of their family. Now, they know they had ripped Joseph's life away from him. They robbed him of a lifetime spent with his beloved father. Now that Joseph had the upper hand on them, and no father in the way to broker peace, wouldn't he obviously turn on them? They would do, in their eyes, grace is conditional. Honor is what truly matters. Now that Jacob's dead, Joseph had no real reason to continue to honor his brothers. So they devised this plan. They they write up what they believe to be a plausible message of last wishes from Jacob, have a special courier deliver it to Joseph. They want to force Joseph's hand into still viewing them through Jacob's eyes. And also interesting, too, because Joseph did have a special relationship with his dad. There's no reason to believe that he would have thought that somehow Jacob was holding something back from him, that he hadn't told him that. Oh, there's this special message. Good thing I have it now from uh, from all my brothers, right? Joseph had already given them forgiveness. He had already told them the same thing that he tells them here in more words. Sometimes the hardest person for us to, uh, 
receive forgiveness from is ourselves. They can't forgive themselves for what Anyone here know the actor Kelsey Grammer? Or famous as uh, Dr. Fraser Crane, um, and also from, from both Cheers and from uh, the spinoff Fraser. I also know him pretty well as uh, Beast from the X-Men. He, he, he did play that role as well. Um, less known about Kelsey Grammer is that at the height of his success, he almost lost his life to an alcohol and drug addiction, all spurred by his inability to forgive himself for his sister's death. When he was 13, his estranged father had been shot and murdered by a psychopath. Uh, later, his two half-brothers died in a scuba diving accident, but it was this tragedy of his sister that he could never shake. His 18-year-old sister was abducted and murdered by a serial killer in Freddie Glenn in Colorado in 1975. It was Grammer who identified his sister's body and then had to inform his mother. Now, the interesting thing here is that Grammer was in a, he was only 20 when this happened, and he didn't even live in the same state. He was nowhere around. So when asked why he blamed himself for this, why he couldn't forgive himself, he said, when there was no way that he could have protected her, he said, it's hard to explain. It's not rational, but it happens anyway. I just have the feeling, just there. We have this strange ability to blame ourselves that, for things that aren't even our fault. So when it is indisputably our fault, it just makes it that much worse, right? Despite Joseph's words of comfort, the brothers have obviously not been able to move past this. They're racked with guilt, but also fear for what they deserve. So I want to suggest a few things I think this passage can teach us about receiving forgiveness, things that we can do. The first is to recognize that forgiveness is undeserved. Forgiveness is not something that we deserve, kind of by definition of it, right? It's, it's a grace that we receive. There's not things that we can do in order, order to deserve it. And thinking in the most basic terms, their fear is really not unfounded. Joseph had become the most powerful man in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and they had done an immense wrong to him. Now the one man who provided any sort of buffer between them was dead. So they were right to fear possible judgment. Here is the appropriate response to something or someone who has that kind of power and authority over you, right? That's why in Proverbs 9.10 it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and Jesus expands on that in Matthew 10.28 by teaching, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear is appropriate when confronted with our wrong. Because we know forgiveness isn't deserved in response. Judgment against the wrong is expected. Now, Joseph is obviously not God, but his, to his brothers, he still represents the nearest thing that a human leader uh, could come to in, in that sort of power. They were literally at Joseph's mercy. Fearing him was certainly a wise move. And yet we also know from Scripture that fear is only the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because we also know in 1 John 4.18 that perfect love casts out fear. And 1 John 4, 7, that God is love. They may have understood Joseph's power as well as their uh, depth of offense to him, but they didn't know Joseph. 
his character. Joseph is really acting in, in similar character uh, to, to God here. That he extends grace and mercy and this love, this, this desire for them to be reconciled with himself. It's right and proper to feel God's, uh, fear God's all-encompassing power. He breathed life into this world. He can snuff the very breath out of our lungs. But he has also proven time and time again that he desires mercy over judgment and restored relationship above all. God doesn't delight in punishing the wicked, but all of heaven rejoices when one lost sinner is brought to repentance. When we grow in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, when we experience the delight of his perfect presence and his covenantal love, we know that we need not fear. We come to him. We will discover that he is with us and he desires restored relationship. In the same way, if Joseph's brothers would have come to him and really understood him on his terms, they would have started to know his heart towards them. And all of the fear of his power would have melted away to an understanding of gratitude the way that he had um, given this immense grace to them. I, th I think that we need to pay attention to that part too, though, because this is the part that I think we have the hardest time accepting. Because we get that forgiveness isn't something we deserve. That's why we have a hard time accepting it, right? But we forget to recognize that forgiveness is not for us. The forgiven. If we said it, uh, and the other way, when we were talking about how to forgive others, we re realized that forgiveness isn't for them. It's for, for us, our release of the hurt and the wounding and a step towards wholeness. It's the same thing in the reverse when we're receiving forgiveness. is that we realize that ultimately it's not about us and our maybe uh, kind of selfish desire to receive disgrace. Ultimately, it's about the other person and it's about the relationship being restored and healed. It's about taking first steps towards wholeness and a repair of what went wrong. God doesn't offer us forgiveness because he's obligated to do so. God forgives us because God earnestly desires to reconcile and restore the relationship that was lost. This is that paradoxical advice of scripture to, to fear God, but don't be afraid because when we know him and know his heart, that he is perfect love. We can tremble before God's awesome majesty and also tremble with the knowing gratitude that this God loves us, desires restored relationship with us, gave his life to make that possible. Last step is to receive forgiveness in faith. I want to suggest this morning that Joseph's response to his brother's plan is a perfect analogy for God's response to all of our efforts to try to earn grace or forgiveness. Confronted with their obvious ruse, Joseph weeps. He doesn't get mad or frustrated. He grieves the fact that they still feel like they have to act like this, that they still don't understand. But we act like Joseph's brothers all the time, right? When we doubt Christ's grace, we tend to work that out in one of two ways. Either we run away from God, trying to distance ourselves from him, or we try to put it on our best front, minimize our flaws, and do whatever we can to make ourselves seem worthy of acceptance, seem worthy of this relationship with God. And I think God grieves every time, just like Joseph, when he sees us acting this way. Don't they know? Haven't I already proved they're forgiven? 
And yet even as God and Joseph grieve this lack of receiving the forgiveness, it only causes them to double down on grace. Grace is grace even when we doubt it. But Joseph reminds them again, I don't hold this against you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you and your kids. Come, live with me. I'm going to take care of you. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 14. Even knowing that his disciples will soon abandon him, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. I know that you'll mess up. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you and your kids. Take care of you. Here's something, a beautiful thing about the church, right? Whether you are perfectly faithful follower in every moment, a sinner running from your past, or even a hypocrite hiding yourself under a mask, there is a place for you at the table, family of God. I have heard people say over and over again, they don't feel like they can come to a church until they get their life in order. Or I hear still others say that they can't come to church because of all the fake people, all the hypocrites that they, they know of in church. But the church is exactly the place where broken and fake people should be because it's where we all come to be reminded that there's hope beyond where we are right now. It's the, the faithful who come because they know that they can't continue without the help of a loving community of fellow seekers around them. So if you're here this morning or if you're at home listening or listening to this later on the podcast, there's anything within you that's been causing you to run away or hide your real self from God or from others for fear of how they might respond, I want to encourage you to give that up. Surrender it. God sees you and knows you for who you truly are, and he longs for you to see and know him for who he truly is, a Lord and a Savior who is unfailingly for you. In the end, that's what the book of Genesis is all about, sort of prequel and foreshadowing to the rest of the redemption story. From Eden to Egypt, we see that no matter how many times we reject God, he continues to find a way to restore relationship. And that's something to be thankful for. Lord, we are thankful that you again and again and again and again and again, and again showed your loving kindness, your grace, your faithfulness, even as you have demonstrated your utter goodness. When we intuitively sense that dissonance in our fallenness and your glory, there are so many times when we just long to run away and hide. Very difficult for us to receive the word of grace and forgiveness that you have offered. To know that you long to covenant with us, to be faithful to us, even when we are faithless. But Lord, you have reminded us again and again. Jesus, you showed us the depth of your love. When we, out of our bitterness and brokenness and fear, responded to you uh, with utmost hatred and rejection, 
nailed you to a cross, but yet still spoke a word of forgiveness. And you conquered all the powers of sin and death. And said, all that you and Reconciled us to yourself. May we receive that in faith. Knowing that it's not deserved. Knowing that it is not even ultimately for us and our selfish desires, but for the good you have seen and made for your glory, for your kingdom. We receive it honor, glory, we should extend that same grace. Good